Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. From Man of the Year to Pineapple Express, Bride of Chucky, Dairy Devil, and Dexter, I'm excited to welcome this composer who is behind the hit Fox series Gotham and its acclaimed, highly stylized spinoff, Pennyworth. You can hear his sound on over 150 TV shows, documentaries, and commercials for directors such as Robert Rodriguez, Adam McKay, David Gordon Green, and Barry Levinson. Zach De La Roach, frontman of Rage Against the Machine, named him Sugar D, and he's contributed to their Battle of L.A. and Renegade Records. And the composer is Sugar D. David Russo. Hello. Hey, pleasure to talk to you. You too, likewise. So David, you have um, a history, I guess, in, in rock music. You were a founding member of the, the alt-rock band Sun 60. When did you discover music as a possible career path? Uh, not until I had graduated college and I was out of work. I was out of college for like two months and I was working in a restaurant and I panicked. I said, what am I, gonna, what am I doing? Just panicked. And then I woke up. I was kind of asleep until then, but then I, then I started hustling. And with the hustling, was there, was there like a specific moment of waking up? Did you have any friends who were, who were doing music or what, what made you wake up? Fear and desperation and running out of money. And, and you, know, you know, I think you let yourself off the hook when you're in school. I'm in school. And then two months out, I thought, wait, I'm not in school. And what am I? I just thought I was directionless. And then I realized the only skill that I had was music. And the only thing I cared about was music. But it had never occurred to me ever to make it a career. Do you have like a lot of support, like in the family or friends of your music? <laughs> uh, well, I would say yes, support always. I mean, my parents were always supportive. Yeah, in fact, you know, that's I, I should say, like in the early days, I was um, I was always in bands. So my, you know, there was support. My parents would come out to the show, friends. Yeah, I mean, there was always support for the music. But again, it was just you know for fun. It was never uh, any idea that it could be a career ever. And there's no history in my family of people making a career out of making music. I had a, my Sicilian immigrant grandfather played guitar on the radio in New York in the 20s. And that's the extent, but he never got paid. It was the extent of the, our family's musical uh, career. I mean, that must have been nice to just see someone in the family, though, who had a career in music or, or had some, some success in music. Well, it, it would have been nice, except for the guy was really mean. My, my grandfather was kind of a mean, angry, bitter man. So uh, it, it should have been, but it wasn't. You know, the, uh, no, unfortunately. Ah, although growing up, there was a lot with, you know, my um, Sicilian family, a lot of parties, lots of cousins, and a lot of music in the house. So in between the yelling, you know, there was a lot of music. So you went to, to UCLA, and I want to ask about how, um, yeah, how school influenced your music, too. And again, uh, and it was funny, I, I was at a uh, recording session for a friend of mine years ago, and I'm walking in and uh, I saw this guitar player. And he goes, what are you doing here? He goes, you're always coming in the back door. 
And I felt that way my whole life. Like, I'm not really supposed to be here. I'm just kind of coming in the back door and, and there I am. That's how it feels. So uh, what the question was, oh, UCLA. So I wandered around UCLA and I didn't, I wasn't a music major. I was an economics and communications major. But all I did was audit music classes. I was really dumb. The only thing I cared about was music classes. And yet it didn't dawn on me that, oh, this should be my major. It was weird. I wonder if that's just... Um... Well, were like the UCLA music programs heavily advertised at that point, or did you just stumble into them? I, I, I stumbled into everything. I couldn't even tell you. He heavily advertised? No. You know, it's like, it was more like I went, well, my parents, no one had ever gone to college before. So I graduated high school. They gave me a bedspread, goodbye and good luck. I was out the door and just trying to figure it out. And they didn't tell me what to do, but they also didn't really care. So I was just, just wandering around, kind of directionless. Again, you know, loving music, but not real, not giving it the respect that it deserved either. Just, I was very young, I think. So how did you end up, was film scoring something in the back of your mind or did you want to just go into just generally music and you ended up in these sessions with, I mean, Rick Rubin, Rage Against the Machine, all that. How did that come about? Uh, well, the, okay. So the session stuff, let's see. Um, the film scoring, you know what, uh, if I look at my life and what little career I've had, it's always because friends have reached out to me and, and opened a door for me. So and when I talk to young composers, I always say, you know, just work on your skill set so that when an opportunity comes, you're ready to jump through that door. Like do your work, have your skills, have a broad skill set and be ready to jump. So I was so blessed that um, in college I met a guy who uh, we became friends. He was a film major and said, will you score my films? Yeah. I think I was the only musician he knew. And we became great friends. We're still great friends. And I just started scoring films, films for him. I was always in bands. Getting out of college, I was in a band that got signed to Epic Records. That band, we did three albums, toured the, you know, for six years, never really sold many. But when that ended, people that I knew from that experience, I was broke turned me on to like, oh, uh, Cheryl Crow needs help in the studio. And at that time, uh, Pro Tools was relatively new. And I happened to, I was always the guy in the band that recorded the band. So I had a Pro Tools rig and said, I can do it. Yeah. So I ended up working in the studio with Cheryl Crow, going, touring Europe with her, doing um, stuff behind stage, adding sounds, adding a lot of stuff, getting back. And then because of that association, got a call from Rick Rubin to do Beats for an album that he was doing. Um, and because of that, uh, oh, the, uh, the engineer, oh, the engineer's assistant for Rage Against the Machine, this guy, Nick Dedea, who had worked with my band, called and said, oh, we need a Pro Tools guy and do, help with loops because we want to start doing loops and Rage had never done that before. I said, yeah, I can do that, sure, you know, why not? So then I ended up spending time, a lot of time in the studio with them and then a lot of time with Tom Morello. Just he would be, um, for a while there, he was doing all these remixes for films. You know, like a Led Zeppelin song for this movie. And, and um, so he would come over and uh, he would have, he'd load the tracks for the original song into my Pro Tools. He'd tear it all away and just start laying down a hundred crazy guitar tracks. And, you know, so I did a lot of work with Tom, but again, through the back door, you know, and just lucky to be in the room. That must have been amazing. I mean, Tom was one of my favorite guitar players. The, one of the most brilliant, kind people I've ever met in my life. Consistent. And I, the thing I notice, you know, when you're guy, like when you're the guy in the corner and you're kind of invisible, Pro Tools guy, nobody cares. Tom was kind and respectful to everybody all the time. 
he didn't have to be. And he just was. That's just who he was. Just a, and just a brilliant person. Yeah. And were you enjoying that time or did you want to, where, where did you see yourself going then? Um, I think, well, by the time, okay. So I had uh, done sc film scoring and some co college stuff, got out, uh, was hustling, doing all kind of different music stuff, still doing some scoring. And then it was about the same time. Oh yeah. About the same, about the same time this band was taking off, uh, Another friend knew a guy who was doing a low-budget film that needed a, a, a score. And it, you know, he needed a full orchestral score. Have I ever done that? No. Can you do that? Yeah, I can do it. Sure. Whatever you need, I'll do it. You know, and there was this film called Spaced Invaders. And it was a, um, an independent film, but then it got picked up by Disney. So then suddenly it was like it was something. It wasn't supposed to be anything. And, it's, you know, it's a silly, sweet, good little film. And then that same guy, Patrick Johnson, he went on to uh, direct a movie called Angus, bigger budget. And then he called me to do that job. So just fortuitous, you know, but my friend Kirk Thatcher was the guy that uh, introduced me to Patrick. So again, if I didn't know Kirk and he didn't give me that opportunity, it would never have happened. You know? uh, wait, I'm sorry. What was your question though? I was just, um, I guess while you were doing all these records, what? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. So the, so later on the band got signed and a lot of these, are, Oh, and at the same time I was doing films at the same time, the band got signed and then we were on the road in the studio and on the road it was six years. So I kind of lost time for the film thing, but it never left my mind. Like I always wanted to do it, but I thought I can't do this band thing forever, you know? So it lasted while it did. And then I applied myself totally when I got, when the band, uh, self-destructed seems like that's the thing where band self-destruct, a member goes to college or something. I think uh, it's built in. Yeah. <laughs> you can't spend that much time with uh, that, you know, this small group of people without loving them and hating them and just going crazy, you know, and it's so intense. And you're sitting in a van driving across the United States playing to an empty club. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a little stressful. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so it seems like you had a pretty uh, steady, straight a shot, I guess, from film to film in terms of trajectory. Did it feel like that? Or no, not at all. Like you know, so uh, I remember, again, my friend from college, his brother was producing a low budget game show. And this was before the band got signed. And, and he say, hey, uh, give him a demo. Oh, okay, I will. So I work in a little demo. They chose it. And it's this stupid little TV show called Putting on the Hits, which is people would go on TV and lip sync to pop songs. Suddenly it's like, a hit around the country. It was on 3000 stations. So that was the first time I ever got money for like a royalty for doing music on TV. Didn't even know it was possible. But that little bit that I got, then I quit my job. And I was at the time I was working at Paramount Studios. They had a and I was a secretary in the music department. But I quit that job immediately because I had that little bit of money so I could apply myself to music more. Now again, I forgot your question again. It was just about like, if it felt like a steady, like, oh yeah, here we go. Not at all. Move up. So then I said, so, but it was always kind of a struggle. And then, um, another friend knew a composer, Graham Ravel, who was looking for someone to help. And at that time, Graham, Graham was doing five films a year. So a lot of the, my film work I did for Graham. And that was like a nine year relationship that was fantastic because he was, he was like a mentor. And I learned so much about the mechanics of film scoring and just being free in, in how you approach music. So one thing Graham taught me that was really valuable is he didn't care if you had a full orchestra or if you had a hammer beating on a, on a can. Those were the same to him. 
It was just how, how best to express this emotion right now. And, and I, I always, in my mind, I thought, ooh, orchestra, oh, that's the thing. And, but I, got a, I gained a respect for just the, the value of any sound to express emotion in film. So that was, a, that was a nine-year relationship. And toward the end of that, he got offered CSI Miami, this TV show. And then he offered for me to co-score it with him. And that was a step up. You know, again, it, I, mean, you, I guess you could say it's been a, an upward trajectory the, the entire time, but, you know, stumbles here and there. But I've been fortunate to, to keep working uh, and just broadening my skill set and getting more gear for the studio. You know? And in terms of like the technical side, seeing as you, you never, I mean, obviously you've been using Pro Tools and knowing how to produce for a while, but with working with a composer like that, you probably learned a lot more about how to re- get deadlines done and all that? Well, um, you know, yeah, you know, now I, and I've done, I don't know how many hour long dramatic shows I've done and that, yeah, I learned a lot about, um, you've got 38 minutes of music to write. You've got seven days and how to do that. And I've, I've learned how to work really fast, how to trust my instincts, uh, that my first instinct, I can rely on it. I'm pretty good that way now. Still you know, um, trying to learn, still open to learning all the time, you know, and making new, new discoveries, but certainly, and the, the workflow and just managing the beast that is the computer and trying to take these dead sounds and trying to bring life into them in some way, you know, I've gotten pretty quick at that, but still, uh, you know, I, I have so much to learn. Right. Yeah. I think we all always do. And right? if we felt like we knew everything that it would just be well, we just die. Yeah, there's, there's revelations all the time. And I keep, and, and funny, and I would say in my writing, I've only really started to do a really appreciate counterpoint like in the past three years. And I don't know what that says about my mind, but uh, I've, there was, you know, revelations. Like, oh, like go, always going deeper. Uh, for sure. Do you feel like the, the tech, as it's progressed over the last like decade or, or longer, has inspired you too? Hmm. It's interesting that, you know, so I rely as everybody else does heavily on these sample libraries. And the thing that I hate about them is that it's so, they're so limiting that there's so much more freedom away from the technology, but you have to use the technology in order to express an idea to a director, unless you're doing a score that's just you playing a violin and a cowbell. you know, you have to use this stuff. So I've actually, it's been a struggle for me over the years to, that's what I said, trying to bring life into sounds that are dead. And, um, and one thing I say to a lot of young composers is um, whenever you can record something and add it to whatever you're creating, it just gives it another level of air and excitement um, in life. What do you think? Sorry? How do you feel about it? When I talked to Teddy Shapiro for this podcast, we, we talked about whether you write to the, to the strengths of the samples or not. And I think he was saying no, but he's also said that he's blessed to record a lot of orchestras for his films. Right. Um, most of the music I've been working on has been TV. So it's really short turnaround times, not right. the budget for that. Right. So I, I think it really depends. I do feel like the tech is more inspiring in the sense that I feel like with every DAW update, the Pro Tools or Logic or Cubase gets more transparent. And I feel like I'm just writing music and not editing notes as much. 
You know, if I weren't doing as much orchestral work and if I was just doing synthesis, I probably would have a different feeling about it. Because then you're, you're not trying to emulate orchestra. You're just trying to create something interesting. And then that's a whole other toolbox, right? Um, but I just, for the past several years, I've been doing stuff that's really orchestrally based. So then it's um, mired in those orchestral samples. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting debate. But speaking of that, I mean, you're, I just want to transition, I guess, to Pennyworth and this incredible main theme you wrote. Thank you. I was blown away the minute I heard that in the first episode. Thank you. So it just blows me away that you, you didn't study it in school and, or in terms of orchestral writing. Nothing. Um, did you listen to a lot of like classical music or orchestral film scores? Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. I think, um, well, I would say I've been an avid film goer hmm. and I probably watched a lot of TV. But uh, even to my shame, I haven't studied scores as much as I should. But that's not, but I have. Sometimes I've gone deep. I remember a period studying Bartok. I mean, after the band exploded, sitting there with the Bartok score and listening and just doing this kind of study, um, I, I have regret I haven't done more of it. But, you know, like, like for Pennyworth, the uh, producers and director kind of laid out like, this is music from the era that we like. This is music from the era that we hate. So then, okay, there's my palette and there's the sensibility. So it was a place to start. And then, tr you know, trusting your imagination, like, and, and trying to say like, can I say something? What can I say? Do I have anything to say? And then like, digging for it and finding it, trying. In the digging for it process, um, what, or do you find yourself sitting in front of your computer playing with the keyboard or do you look for inspiration in other ways? Well, you know, again, it depends on what it is. So if it's, mm. if, so the Pennyworth main title is just melodic, purely melodic. So I knew I wanted a melody I could hum, I could whistle. And this dog over here, I walk him like six times a day. So for me, that's the time. I walk him and then ideas just come while I'm walking. Not as much in front of the computer because as soon as I have the keyboard, then I'm limited by my playing ability. And I can play, but I'm not, I'm not great. So then that limits you too. So you're, I think my mind is the most flexible uh, instrument that I have. So that's the best approach for me. Of course, but then if you're trying to create something that's sonic and, and textural, well, I, ha I need the technology to do that. I can't just do it in my head. Right, yeah, I guess it always does change based off the, the project. That's right. Yeah. And um, it's, yeah. So can you talk about um, the other aspects of the show musically? What was challenging? Where, where did you find yourself being proud of a musical moment? What was interesting is the same team that had done Gotham, 100 episodes of Gotham, moved over to Pennyworth. But the sensibility of the show is quite different. So with Pennyworth, I mean, with Gotham, it's the kitchen sink all the time. Like, you know, there's I don't know, 30 main characters and they all have their own themes in different sonic worlds. And, you know, the between the penguin and the Riddler and freeze and, and all, and uh, the mad hatter. And it's really rich and aggressive. It's really aggressive all the time. It's out front uh, and guttural. Um, and then with Pennyworth, the, they wanted a much, much lighter touch. So then you have to define, well, what does that mean? What's a lighter touch? Like if, if there's a, a chase or a gunfight, what's a lighter touch? What does that mean? How, how much, how far do you go in supporting the scene? Does the music ever step out in front? 
or so that was something I had to find. And, you know, it took a while to find a tone that kind of supported it in the way that everybody that made everybody feel comfortable and really pulling the reins back for me and being a lot more subtle. On that note, do you find that you overwrite a lot or? I've wondered, you know, so much of this like stuff, I don't know. I don't know. And, and, uh, and, and I look back, actually, actually put it this way. Every time I listen to something that I've done, every show, I think, ah, I wish I'd have done this. Uh, I, why did I, every time, every single time. Oh, why didn't I do this? Why did I do that? So with the pace of TV, you're just, you have to deliver. So uh, you don't have as much time. You know, you could take a year doing an hour long dramatic show. You've got seven to 12 days. So do I overwrite? Probably sometimes. Maybe sometimes I overwrite. Probably, you know don't support it in a way that it needed to be supported. I'm giving it my best all the time, but I, I think I miss sometimes. Yeah. I mean, again, just with the crazy pressure of TV music and maybe some people don't understand this, but it seems like at least on my end, it's been like five days to do a 45 minute episode of TV or 30 depends. Wow. Yeah. Is that around the same for you? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, actually, luckily, very rarely five days. Normally, we've, I've had seven to 12. So I've, I've been fortunate. Five days. Brutal. Yeah. I wonder if that's the difference between synthy-ish. Not that everything I've worked on is synthy, but I'd say it's more band-like than orchestral. Well, you know, the, the synth stuff can take up the bandwidth more easily. I mean, you can compress the hell out of something. And it's like, ooh, that's, that's, that's filling it up. You know, with orchestral stuff, I found that I need to kind of give it more depth and complexity. Otherwise it sounds thin. So there's a, for me, there's more, it's a little bit more work. But yeah, it's true with, um, with orchestral writing. I think a funny thing is you, you can't hold down a couple notes on your keyboard with a sampled string library and just have it drone. It will just become monotonous quickly. Yeah. That was one thing. So uh, the producer for Gotham, this guy, Danny Cannon, been working for him for 18 years. Guys, you know, we've just gone from series to series to series. Did uh, four seasons of Nikita with him. But um, after Nikita, when we started Gotham, Danny said, okay, I don't want anything sequenced. Nothing. Everything has to be performed, you know, for the character of the show. I thought, okay, let's go. You know, uh, and it, it changes, really changes what happens, you know, when you don't, you, nothing is sequenced. I don't know if it's better or worse, just different. Yeah. Well, I see you have a cello back there. Do you do you perform a lot of real instruments over your... Um... You can't see, but there's lots of stuff in here. Yes, I do. I know I can't play the cello, but I'll play the cello. You know, I have a, I have a viola bolted to a music stand. See, because I can't play the viola, so I can't hold it. If I hold it, I can't play it. So if it's bolted down, I can I can bow and I can do stuff with it, but I can't hold it like this and do anything. So it has to be bolted down. But it's good. Really, it works. I've never seen that before. <laughs> you know, because I thought um, there's there's a lot of sample libraries of kind of ostinato stuff, rhythmic things, you know, uh, and I can I can play rhythms. I just can't play. And I can play simple, simple melodic things or weird low stuff. You know, you can do a lot. Well, I guess that's, yeah, just the extra like 12% that just goes over the, the sampled stuff and makes it feel cool. For Pennyworth, so I play, there's a dulcimer, a lot of drums over there, uh, vibes, marimbas. And I did uh, one thing I really love is, oh yeah, the water phone. And uh, I, I bought this old 
uh, upright piano and ripped off all the wood and just had the soundboard and the key and the strings and just playing that, plucking it, uh, you know, it's just endless what you can do uh, with the body of a piano and totally out of tune, strange little melodies you can pluck. It's great. Great instrument. Gotcha. Well, I guess on that note, we might just go to the, the final segment for, for the show. It's called Tech Talk. It's a segment where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. Okay. First one we got here is DAW. Digital Performer. So when I started with uh, Digital Performer, it was called Performer. It was pre-digital, right? I mean, didn't, we couldn't record. It was just MIDI. So I just happened to learn it and I just uh, stuck with it. I never cared enough to learn another one. So Digital Performer seems to work, seems to be able to do anything I can think of in it. Works. You know, I'm true to it. Nice. Danny Elfman uses Digital Performer, everybody. So it can't be all bad. Yeah. No, and Marco Botrami, I think, still uses it. Marco does? Okay. Yeah, it's funny with that one. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's still the one they teach, I believe, in 2020 when this is being filmed uh, at Berkeley for film scoring. That's that's surprising. You would have thought like Logic? Yeah, Logic seems to be, you know, it's Apple and it seems to be the thing. But okay, nice to hear it. Well, DP still has a lot of really cool video features, I think. and Oh, and they're <laughs> Massachusetts too. I wonder if there's that connection. MIDI controller. Oh, the actual keyboard? Mm-hmm. I'm using this uh, M Audio, uh, M Audio KeyStation 88. Nice. They're indestructible. And if you want uh, reassurance, Chris Beck uses them. And he's a monster, that guy. Yeah. Nice. And you can afford any MIDI controller, I'm sure. And uh, see, I don't go for the weighted keyboard because when I first started out, uh, the DX7 was the was the keyboard like that was the affordable one it had the marimba sound that everybody would just ooh and ah over it's just incredible with the sound of a marimba it's not weighted so this i don't go for the weighted keyboard yeah it, it it's hard to do really fast string passages or right jumps. right yeah i mean i bet james newton howard has a weighted keyboard like you know he's a incredible piano player you know he probably needs the weighted thing but not me it's funny you say that because now that i think about his music i I can't think of too many like crazy fast like string passages, and I wonder if that's if that's why. You know what? I was just listening to his score for the Fantastic Beasts, and there's some crazy string passages in there. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah, crazy stuff, and he can probably play them too on the piano. I bet he can. Right, he's just too good for. Yeah, he's a monster. Uh, next we got ooh cello. Kind of talked about a bit. Cello, yeah. Oh, cello. That's it. I mean, that's, that's the long and the short of it. Oh, in fact, uh, if you notice that cello is, um, it's standing in a box. So I cannot sit and hold the cello and play it. I can't do it. So I stand up and it sits in, it sits in this box. So it's just, so I, my hands are free to do whatever I need to do. It seems like you're very uh, hands-on with the stuff and you, you really, um, gotta be risks and you know, I would I actually, I said this one once before. I would love it if somebody said, I want you to do a score, but all you can use is spoons. You know, some really, really limited palette. And I think that would be a great challenge. I would love it. Oh, I did a film called uh, Evil Alien Conquerors, just low budget com comedic film. And the, um, the director writer said, I just want the whole score to be percussion, nothing else. And like little, like little tiny little hand drums. And these are like these two doofus aliens that come to earth and try to um, destroy earth. They're just idiots. So that was, that was fun. I liked that challenge. A couple of wood blocks. Wow. That sounds like a lot of fun. You know, when they do battle and they, <laughs> it's pretty funny. 
Well, you killed it here with Tech Talk. And do you want to tell the people what uh, what else you got going on? Uh, right now, let me see. I've been working on um, a good friend of mine up in San Francisco wrote a uh, a play that we're we're turning into a radio play right now. It's called The Death of Teddy Ballgame. So there's a great writer, director, producer who wrote this play. So we're working on that. We've actually been uh, recording. He's quarantined up in San Francisco and I'm here. So we've been doing, uh, doing that remotely. And then um, I did a film, uh, a documentary a few years ago called The Elephant in the Living Room, which is, uh, it talks about um, exotic animal ownership in the United States and how it always goes wrong for the animals. So that filmmaker, Mike Weber, is doing a kind of a sequel to that. And I've been contributing to that a little bit. And walking my dog. Uh, well, amazing. It was a pleasure talking to you, David. And Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong. <laughs>